Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. And show the world your heart. Express yourself to art. And show the world your heart. Express yourself to art. And welcome. You're listening to Art on the Air on WVLP 103.1 FM and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. This is our weekly program covering arts and arts events in Valparaiso and throughout Northwest Indiana. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Our theme music you heard is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Underwriters for Art on the Air are Valparaiso University's Brower Museum, regional art patron Mary LeVan, and our landlord, Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments. If you'd like to find out more about leasing space in this historic building, please give Walt a call. 219-462-5821. 219-462-5821. I'd like to thank them for their generous support. Thanks to Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager. And Tom Maloney, Vice President, Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and is part of the National Endowment for the Arts. If you're interested in being a guest or sending us information about your arts, arts-related event or exhibit, please email us at artontheairwvlp at gmail.com. That's artontheairwvlp at gmail.com. Our program, along with all of our programs, are streaming live at wvlp.org. Art on the Air is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Our entire show archive can be heard at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com slash AOTA. You'll also find our detailed arts calendar at breck.com slash AOTA. Our shows are carried by Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, every Sunday at 7 p.m., and you can hear them at lakeshorepublicradio.org. And make sure to like us on our Facebook page, Art on the Air, WVLP. Art on the Air is always looking for financial support. We'd like to thank our current supporters. If you're looking to support Art on the Air and, of course, the WVLP station, we'd be happy to become part of the WVLP family anytime. Esther and I especially would invite you to become an underwriter of this program in particular. We have information on our website at breck.com AOTA. You can find out support information there or at wvlp.org support. We have underwriter levels at various levels. You can support us. We'll mention you during our show and throughout the WVLP broadcast day. You know, we encourage you to uh, become part of a supporter because we are supported by our listeners. So don't just be a WVLP and Art on the Air listener. Become a supporter or underwriter in whatever amount you're able to do so so we continue to bring you this great content and this great local programming. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. And you'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air and the whole WVLP family. Join the WVLP family today. And we'd like to welcome to uh, Art in the Air Spotlight, someone who's been with us before, Tim King from the LaPorte County Symphony Orchestra. Welcome. Hi, how are you all? Thank you. We're fantastic. Well, you've got a lot of things happening. Uh, you, of course, you got new officers on your board, but the big thing is coming up is uh, Hoosier Star Auditions. So tell us about yeah. that. Well, we were supposed to have auditions back in March, and of course, that uh, didn't take place for obvious reasons. But we rescheduled them for July the 11th and 12th. So right now, we have about still have about 70 people that have signed up for that. 
Um, and we still have some spots left on Saturday 11th. They want to go to HoosierStar.com and check that out. What we're going to do this year is obviously we cannot have a live performance with people in the audience or with the orchestra even. So we've decided to tear it down, and we're going to do almost like a studio session with five members of our orchestra as a sort of a backup combo for the ten finalists, and we're going to stream this live online on our website, the Who's Your Star website, several Facebook sites, a couple of radio stations, and we're still working out all the kinks. Um, this will be streamed free, obviously, to anybody who wants to see it, but in order to vote, you'll have to pay $5. What a great um, fundraising idea. So the good part about this is that, say a finalist has a relation that lives in California or New York or anywhere in the world, they can still see this and vote if they want to. Of course, the bad thing is that we can't have the full orchestra and people can't be there live. And so it's going to miss some of the excitement about it. But we, we really wanted to keep this tradition up. This is the 15th year. Um, and so we're working very diligently to make sure that this is going to happen. And that will be September the 12th, Saturday, September the 12th at 7 p.m. Central. Is there a sign-up deadline? Uh, July the 3rd, sign-up deadline. Very good. And uh, what's the eligibility to uh, be in uh, Hoosier Star? There are two divisions. One is the youth division, which is 17 years old and younger. And the other one is the adult division, which is 18 years old and over. And both of them will contain a $1,000 first prize and a $500 second prize. Wow, very good. That is continuing. <laughs> well, thank you. It, it, I tell you, I, I'm working with a bunch of 20 and 30-somethings, and they are dragging me, kicking and screaming into the 21st century. Well, actually, that's kind of my, that's what I was going to ask. So um, I was looking, you know, you know, the LCSO vision. It uses this. It uses six pillars. You know, excellence, diversity, mm -hmm. participation, engagement, education, and collaboration. Can you mention some of the new initiatives or discussions related to, like, how you had to adjust to the global pandemic? Well, of course, we had to cancel the last two concerts for March and April. Or right now, we would have had a new music director by now. Uh, so we have scheduled them for next season. We'll see how that goes. But uh, in the case for Hoosier Star, we just ha we just knew that we were going to have to. We wanted to do it, and so we met with a bunch of people, all of them, of course, younger than me, uh, to tell us how we could do this. And the, the online decision to do this is the way we want to do it. And of course, so the people performing will be piano, trap set, bass, guitar, things like that. Just can't use the whole orchestra. And so for in the education, uh, because we usually have our education concerts in October with 6,000 students attending. And they that love it. going to happen. Uh, they love it, and, but that isn't going to happen live. But we've been bringing in this gentleman who actually used to teach in the Laporte system. His name is Rick DeYoung, and he's in Nashville. And he's going to take last year's concert, which we taped, and he's going to dissect it, add to it, and add a whole bunch of online uh, opportunities, and he's sort of going to be the host of an almost quasi-TV show for the the students. And so this will be accessible online beginning in October, pretty much to any educator that wants to see this and put it, uh, present it in their classrooms. And we'll also have online educational materials that they can download on our website as well. So that's just two of the things that we're that we're working on now. Of course, we you know we're willing to get back to live performance. But I know what about the concert I, in Washington Park in August? How, well, what we're what we're planning right now, Esther, on that one is uh, right now we're planning to do it, but we will do it with 
probably half the orchestra distanced from each other, uh, and then people would have to be separated on the lawn, or they could even stay in their cars if they wanted to, and we are going to have a sound company come in and enhance the sound for us. So that's the plan on that one. We don't know. It's still tentative. Uh, we want to do it, and we're just kind of keeping everything on hold until we see what the national front says. Do a la carte online, too? <laughs> well, we, we're we looking at a thing called mini cards. <laughs> we're looking at providing opportunities that we can either deliver to people um, or uh, so we're still working on that. A, a la carte, of course, took a hit this summer because, as you know, that's a that's a social dinner get together in people's homes, and that wasn't going to happen. So we're working on being provide some sort of opportunity for people that can still support the orchestra and us providing them something in return. Tune tune in. Yeah, Tim, we have to wrap it up here real quick. So okay. give us the uh, uh, web address for Hoosier Star again. Uh, Hoosier Star Auditions, July 11th and 12th. Uh, audition deadline is July the 3rd. Application online at HoosierStar.com with the performance September the 12th. Okay, thank you so much. That's uh, Tim King with the DePort County Symphony Orchestra and Hoosier Star. Appreciate you being on Art in the Air Spotlight. It's great to talk to you both. Thank you. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. And we'd like to welcome back to Art on the Air, Jill Chambers. Uh, she's based in Sagatalk Mission. She started out as a graphic designer, but developed her own art uh, at Jill Chambers Design. She produces one-of-the-kind handmade ornaments, often with a whimsical nature or holiday theme. Welcome to the show. Aloha. Thank you. Thank you, Esther and Larry. Thank you so much. Well, first off, we'd like to know uh, for our audience a little bit about your own personal history, like where you were and how you got from there to where you are now. So tell us a little bit about that, Jill. Well, you know, I I think some people are just born to be artists. I, I sometimes think that people think that artists are just people who can draw really well, and I, and I don't think of that being the case at all. I think some people are artists that are like real computer wizards, or some people are artists that are just, they just have a sense of spirit or a sense of color that just, you know, is where their artistry lies or emanates from. And... I think my whole life, this was the trajectory I was on from very, very young. I think my parents, even though this wasn't something they intended to foster, they certainly did a wonderful job of it. And um, just with the types of gifts I received as a child and, and that type of thing. I did, after college, I did become a graphic designer. And that was that was great. It was fabulous training. It was wonderful training as far as um, you know doing page layout and um, just you know just balance and and you know symmetry. It was it was a wonderful wonderful training field for me. But really, I think my whole life I've I've been more of an illustrator than a designer or. Still, or... if anyone yeah. leaves a trail of fairy dust, it is you because you make <laughs> you make the mundane magical in everything you do. <laughs> And I can just imagine you as a child with the pond, <laughs> building your villages and magic yeah, things. Funny is, um, you know, I, I was out uh, weeding the the front flower bed over the weekend for a little bit, and, the, and a toad went by. And you know, you, you don't outgrow those sensibilities where you think, "Well, what's going on?" And you give them a um, a story, you know, <laughs> just to pass the time and. And I think that that's not changed since I was very little. 
you know. No, um, no, because you see it in everything you do, in the painting of the ornaments, in your shadow boxes, which were which are so brilliant. And oh, then, thank you. And then, and then we'll talk later if you want about happy bones because that's like a personal favorite. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I guess you know it's um, it's a remarkable thing when you um, look kind of back on, on on your journey and things that maybe people didn't intend to to affect you, perhaps do in a major kind of a way, and and maybe. Some of the things, some of the choices I made, you know, it seems like I didn't get to this point where I'm at right now, which I adore this point where I'm at, but I didn't get there in a straight path. And I think some people, if you're raised in a, an artistic household or artistic community, you'd maybe get there really quick, and it seems to me like it took me a while, but I also think that my journey's been kind of um, fun and interesting, and so, you know, you just have to be grateful, I guess. Tell us a little bit about the children's books that you illustrated, uh, the stories on those and how, how those came to be. Well, I remember when I was in, um, gosh, I would have been kindergarten, I think, and I was really young. For my, I was like a year young. I started very early. And I remember uh, the teachers talking about when we grow up, and I remember I raised my hand and I said, when I, was, when I grew up, I was going to draw pictures and books. So that was a huge goal. Um, from then on, that was always my, my focus, was to become a children's book illustrator. And um, it didn't really happen very quickly. It, it I, you know, I um, I worked on a fishing boat in Alaska. I, I did waitressing. I did a lot of home health care, taking care of elderly people or people who were in end life on stage. Um I did pretty much everything but artwork. I did a lot of portraiture of people, um, just a, a lot of different odd jobs. And then I finally got a job um, in an office furniture company here in West Michigan doing graphic design. Um, oh, I, I was in a newspaper for a short while before that doing graphic design. And I, I just, you know, I, I just really hated working for someone else, I guess. That's what it <laughs> That's what it boils down to. I I just really wanted to be on my own, so I started my own graphic design business. And I'm sort of a 180% person, whatever I do. So when when our daughter was about to be born, I realized I really couldn't have that business, that graphic design business anymore. And I did an about-face and um, sent my portfolio to um, some... uh, a variety of uh, book publishers, and I got two um, contracts from those from that portfolio presentation, and that's where I got into children's um, book illustration. The, the The deadlines for that were so much um, more forgiving than the deadlines for graphic design. So that was a lot of how that ha- why that happened. I guess my decision in that. You know, I'd like to scroll back to the fishing boat for just a minute in, in Alaska. Tell us a little bit about that. That just, that just sounds very interesting. Oh, well, you know, it, it was interesting. Um, I, I I look back at it now and I think, my God, I would never let my kids do this. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think, I think, I think um, you know, I just know too much now. And, you know, and I, I, I think when I, when I left... Um, I was in a single parent household and I think my mom was like, Oh my God, that's so cool. You know, she was kind of a hippie, although she really wasn't a hippie, but you know, she, I think she was a, 
she just didn't know she was a hippie, but she really was. But she was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Okay. And I only had enough money for a one-way ticket. And, of course, it was pre-cell phone times. And I got there, and I was I bought this ticket to Dillingham, Alaska. And, well, I was out walking the docks looking for work. Everything I owned got stolen. All my clothes, everything. It was an exceptionally warm day, so I was just in a T-shirt and jeans. It was just terrible, you know. <laughs> it was a terrible beginning. But but that's, you know, the, the things you think of. Um, but I got hired that same day, and a bunch of fishermen found out that I'd, you know, lost um, lost all my clothes. And they they all chipped in and uh, bought me clothes and gave me clothes, I guess, probably more, more like it. They gave me their old clothes. So I wore a lot of mismatched clothes that first uh <laughs> I'm sure I looked I looked really great, but anyways, um, yeah, I, I worked for Icicle Seafoods on a on a processor, actually out on the Bering Sea, and you know I I don't know the, the hours are long. You work seven days a week, um, usually sixteen hour a day, and it was it was really hard work. It was really hard work, but um, you know, so many ways it was pretty great too. You know, I just um, you know, so much I think about things that have happened in my life for whatever reason. It just seems like there's a lot of magic in it. Um, you know, just certain visuals. I remember one place we we stopped along the Aleutians because someone had gotten hurt and they had to take him off. They take him off, um, which is not good. You know, it was sad. But I remember all these jellyfish. There must have been thousands of them just floating up all different sizes, and they were all lit up. You know, from their I think there's an algae or something that's... Um, I think they were luminescent. Kind of, yes, they were luminescent. And it was just like one of those incredible... Um, just visually, it's one of those things that I think I'll always have with me that I just I think about more, probably more often than I... Like, oh my God, I need to have something else to think about in my life. But it was just so magical and so beautiful, you know. So there are just moments like that. Um, I remember, you know, just so much about that that was just pretty wonderful in spite of the work, in spite of the hard work. So, how, how long yeah. did you do that? Um, I did that, I'm trying to think, two years? Two, well, two seasons, two, um, two fishing seasons. So I didn't do the winters. I just did the, the warmer, you know, the, the, mostly the salmon months. Um, but it, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. It was good. And then what brought you back from Alaska? Well, I, I put my through college, and um, I came back because, I'm trying to think which, which years, oh, I went to Europe, that was what I did, and so I took the money I made that second season, and I think I was out done with college then, or I can't remember exactly what the, the time frame on all of this, but I went to Europe and spent like a few months, I just backpacked, you know, that was when it was a lot cheaper to be um, an American in, in Europe, and it was just easier to do you know, to kind of live hand to mouth and, and do that. And that was wonderful, too. That was really rewarding. Really, really nice. Um, so that's, I guess I, I just maybe I really wasn't that. Um, I didn't have my feet on the ground so much. Then I didn't have my myself in one place at the time, at that point in time. So so when you were backpacking, did you sketch? You know, how was <laughs> No, I was a terrible artist. No, Esther, I would like to be able to say, oh, yes. I sketched and I went to all the great art museums. This is what, in reality, I did. I went to every single cemetery I could find. Okay. 
Yeah. I love those. I love the old cemeteries. I went to the cemeteries, and I went to the zoos, which oftentimes were kind of sad places, but I sometimes were really interesting places, like the one, and I think it was Barcelona or Madrid. It was just the most amazing zoo to me. Um, I went um, to natural history museums. I adore, adore, adore natural history museums and, like, local museums, like those, like, local little museums that you never want to see most of the time in small towns because they really are sort of small-town museums, but I really like them. Yeah, I do, too. Um, yeah, yeah, of course you do. I, I, I'm sure. It's just there's something about if you're an artist, I think, or a storyteller or whatever, there's so much um, inspiration there. Just in the 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 small things in life that um, that that maybe make a town or make a community. It's just um, the people that maybe were just like me at one point in their lives, just sort of wandering around, and you know, look what happened a hundred years or three hundred years later. You know, it, it's it's um, mind boggling. Well, I mean, that's the charm of being that's the charm of being alive too. I mean, like finding all those. I mean, yeah. I've, I just love, I just love exploring small towns and yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just amazing. I mean, it's just, it's just some of the things that you come up with um, that you learn. And I, I guess so. Anyways, I did not do sketching, and I did not. I went to a few art museums, but <laughs> I wasn't like I, I studied art history. You know, you'd think I would have gone to all those things, but I didn't. I, I spent a lot of the times in squares, just watching people, and. Um, and I ended up just having a wonderful time. It was great. So what do you do then after you did your European tour there? Um, I went back to work. I'm trying to think what I did for a job for a while then. I think at that point, when I was in high school, um, maybe I was pretty young, maybe 15 or 16, I started taking care of people, like living with them that were sick and um, staying with them. And then I went back to doing that again. Um, because I was, you know, I didn't have any money. So I took care of people and I, um, I have to say there are a couple people that I took care of that really stand out in my mind just because, um, one, one lady, one lady she had, I think maybe, I don't know what she had. She was really sweet, super, super sweet. Her family paid me to stay with her. Um, but she she would sit at the table all the time and kind of nod her head and smile. She was very just wonderfully sweet. But she told me the same two stories over and over and over again all day, every day. And, you know, and one of them was so remarkable that I ended up going to the, um, after after she was gone, after she died, I, I went to the um, local history, I think it was museum, and I looked at, up and oh my golly, she she was a front row person in this terrible fire that had swept through her town, and um, she kept telling me the story over and over again about what had happened during the fire from her perspective as a girl, and it was so interesting to think here's this person that I spent all this time with and she experienced this and it was a terrible time, a terrible terrible thing. And then you read about it as the overall thing, and it was a, it was horrific, you know, just a terrible time. Did you archive so, her story at the museum for her? Well, no, because nobody was doing that kind of thing then. You know, it was just, um, no, it, it, I, I did not. And that would be a cool thing to do now, I think, you know, now that you say that, Esther, that's a really good idea if they have that 
there in that town. I don't know if they have, like how they're doing like the like the verbal archives, right? Is that what you're talking or, about? Or even just a written account of it so that they have it. No, but I remember they had a, um, a history um, room there in the library, and I would go in, and I told them why I was there. So, you know, it was one of those... Um, now I think it would be more um, of interest, possibly, but at the time there were still people alive that had been there, you know? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't It wasn't as big a deal. It's just that it was to me because I hadn't heard the story, and, um, and she'd shared it with me over and over and over again, <laughs> you know? So... That it was just it was just one of those things. It was um a lot to be said for having a variety of odd or unusual jobs, I guess, um in your life is that you kinda come up with people maybe you wouldn't meet or experiences you wouldn't normally have. You know. It was good. So let's talk about your uh, process a little bit um, of what you're doing with, uh, well, I guess the ornaments, but how you got to to making ornaments, uh, how that developed with your art and everything like that, and then how what the ornaments are like. I mean, I have a, uh, looking at these online, and of course now I possess one, a flying uh, barn owl. So tell us a little bit about that, Jill. Well, okay. Um, when I was very young, like maybe just really, really young, like like um, before I was in school, I think maybe, maybe a little younger, or a little older, I can't remember exactly, but I think I was probably around four, I was riding my bike, we lived in Sutton State, Michigan, riding my bike down the street, and there was a lady, and I remember because she had blue hair, you know, like how people used to have blue hair, she was really tall, and she kind of had this bluish hair, and very well dressed, and she stopped me, and she said, Jill Ellen, she said, here's something that you might enjoy, and she handed me this little box full of these beautiful little painted china um, bells that were made in, I think, occupied Japan, um, that her son had brought home from the war, she said. And she gave this set to me, and from then on, I started collecting and, and making my own ornaments. At first, I did Christmas ornaments, and that's really what I collected and what I would, um, when I made ornaments, what I would make. And I usually made them out of, like, more found materials, like I love... Um, Oh, you know, um, milkweed pods, you know, the, the seed pods. Right. Um, yep, those are great. Um, broken eggshells, that type of thing, um, that you can fill, you know, for little mini dioramas and stuff. So that was how I got started making them. And, um, when the children's books were done, when I had finished those two, I just, I just found it really hard because I'm only good at focusing on one thing. I found it very hard to be, a parent and a, and a and painting. Um, my my childcare was the people were making more money than I was making. I'll put it that way, <laughs> you know. So I just thought, well, this is silly. I should just um, experiment with things. And um, so while the kids were well, while they were you know getting to they were more self sufficient, I just would do um, you know would create my own like ornaments or decorations. And eventually, this ended up um, experimenting, and I got into um, wood, and I started making these um, ornaments that were really more like a illustration. I think when I'm at my best, I think um, I do an I'll create an ornament that is um, that looks like you can see a story within just that ornament. That it's not just a static, like beautiful thing. You know, it's a it's something that actually has some life and movement of its own. 
so that's that's my goal. That's my goal going forward is to just get better at that. So I, I guess I got into ornaments from a really early um, age. I just um, did it, started doing it for a living when I was much older. And uh, what's your inspiration for some of the? They're very whimsical. The the little things that you're right. They almost are a story when you look at them. But what's your inspiration for some? And do you do them seasonally also? If I remember right. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, the first um, time I did these wood ornaments like this, um, the, the, they're they're hand painted, and I use like crystals and uh, you know foil and. And I also like Astrid said I do dioramas. I do um haunted houses. I love haunted houses. I think yeah, they're so crazy gorgeous. things with with doors, um, and Christmas advent calendars that are three dimensional too. I love that type of thing, doing that type of thing. But when I first did it the first the first time I made these, I did maybe I don't know, just a, f- a handful of Christmas ornaments and you know, it's really hard to compete with Hobby Lobby. And you know, and when I look back and at a couple of those first Christmas ornaments I made, we're not really all that good anyways. And then to have to compete with, you know, um, these big box stores is really hard because people think, oh, my gosh, you know, you can get a, these are more expensive because, of course, they are as a, because, you know, just the whole process behind what I do. Um, and I wasn't doing limited editions then either. I really hadn't thought too much. I just thought, oh, I'll just make, you know, maybe 10 of these and see if I can sell them kind of thing. So the first ornaments were not all that good, and I couldn't compete, but I just kept going anyways because I was really into it. And what I found was Christmas was not my good seller. Christmas did sell, but what really sold was Halloween. That was the holiday that just um, was amazing. I mean, it was like such a great holiday. And I'm in a group called Bewitching Peddlers of Halloween, which did get canceled for this year, unfortunately, due to COVID. Um, but... That um, the Halloween uh, collectors market is is um, wonderful and supportive and exciting and fun. So I do a lot of Halloween. Um, I still do Christmas. I do Easter. I love the colors of Easter. You know that whole springtime um, palette. Um, and I do things that even really have nothing at all to do with any holiday, just because uh, you know Barnello mermaids. Um, Dude, what about what about the um, intake? Events and stuff. Do you still do those? Because you make the. Oh, like I don't. Ones? No. Okay. No, I, I used to do like like I used to think oh I'd have to be practical in order to sell anything. So I was doing these air intake vents, these HVAC um, grill covers, and you know I, I think that I um, started doing those right about the time that the recession hit and the the housing market just everything was for sale. And man, you know, that's like, like the worst time you could, could ever start a business like that. It was just, it just didn't go. Um, so I just kept going, but all this time I was still doing ornaments. And I guess that maybe there's really not always such a great time to be doing ornaments either, but it's actually working. I think I just had to focus on one area and that's kind of hard to do. You know, well, they're, they're heirloom quality. So they, they are, I mean, I look forward to passing mine on. Well, thank you. That's the goal. (laughs) That's the goal. That's the goal. Thank you. Uh, Jill, Um, before we get uh, too far along, because we've only got about a minute and a half left, tell us a little bit. We interviewed you before in uh, COVID-19. Tell us a little bit for the audience that may not have heard that, how that's affecting you uh, personally and in your art and things like that. Sure. Well, 
with COVID-19, before COVID-19, um, I mean, you can go to my website and, um, and send me a text or an email, and I will be happy to sell anything to anybody. That they, if they want to do it that way, that's fine. Um, and, I, and I do that, but mostly my sales are through stores. And um, the West Coast of the U.S. Um, started to close down with COVID-19 before this area did. But pretty much um, almost all the shops remain closed. Um, some of them have just opened. I do a line of ornaments that's just for the tourism market. They are not limited editions. They're smaller. They're less expensive. Um, great collectibles if you're on a vacation, that type of thing. Um, and, you know, that, that business has really gotten hit. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not doing well. So in anticipation that this was going to happen and also because I was planning to do this anyways, I had been working for a while on this uh, product called Happy to Bones, and it's basically a skeleton paper doll that you um, cut out the costumes and you can dress it up, however. And I ended up making this uh, late winter, um, early spring when I was anticipating that it was going to be a rough year for um, the ornament business. I... Um, Develop these books. So I have four books so far. One's Halloween. I have Holidays. Um, Halloween, Holidays. I'm trying to think. Um, what else I have? Halloween, Holidays, and um, Fantasy. Bridal, specialty. And, oh, yeah. Well, the, the Fantasy, the Bridal Zone, the Fantasy one. That's right. Um, and Victorian and Steampunk. That's it. And right now what I'm working on are witches. Um, I love um, witch costumes because most witches um, in folklore – and just, you know, like, like Greek, like, um, Cersei and, and stuff, they were, um, quite beautiful. And I think they had beautiful clothes. So it's pretty exciting. And so that's what I'm working on, is I'm working on a witch's book. And that has been, I guess, the, uh, the thing that I'm kind of thinking will really help this year not be quite such a wash, you know. Well, that's great. Well, I get afraid we have to wrap up. We're out of time. That's Jill Chambers, and you can find out information about her at Jill at Chambers dot or Chambers dash Arts dot com. That's Chambers dash Arts dot com. Thank you so much for being on Art of the Air. Oh, thank you both, Larry and Esther. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP one hundred three point one FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio eighty nine point one FM. And we'd like to welcome back to Art in the Air, someone we had for, during our COVID-19 special, John J. Habella. He's a sculptor whose work is influenced by his trips abroad, abundance of folk art revealed in his Family Man series of figurative abstracts carved in wood, cast in bronze, embodied a sense of he- uh, heroic stoicism. John, welcome to Art on the Air. Hi, Larry. Hi, Esther. Aloha, John. Well, well, we first like to always ask our guests how you got from where you were to where you are, your personal kind of narrative of your development. Well, a number of years back, I was born in Hamburg, Germany. My parents and I emigrated to the States, ended up in Gary, Indiana, where I spent a few years growing up. And then we uh, filtered out to Portage, Indiana, where I ended up going to high school. Eventually ended up getting a degree in English and German Lit at IU. Subsequently, uh, dabbled in, in the arts at the time. Needed to fill in some electives, and I found the was really fascinating and delved into that part of my life. And since then, I've been uh, creating works of art, I guess, for about 40 years. I was a, uh, I used to sell ski equipment and, and uh, manage the Pine Ski Area in Valparaiso, so people knew me from that. And that was a period of time when I was married to my first wife and my kids were growing up. 
And subsequently after that, I ended up becoming uh, a trim carpenter. Uh, I got into the trades, and I was reasonably good at it and made my career until I retired about six years ago. Subsequently, uh, my wife and I live on a four-acre spread here in Chesterton, Indiana. She's uh, looking forward to retiring in October, so she's working out of the house right now for uh, for her company, Nice Source, and subsequently, we do a lot of gardening, a lot of flowers. I've added to the house. I've built a workshop studio in the back, and we're kind of hunkered down for the COVID, just like everybody else. I guess that's about it. Okay. Well, why don't you? We'll we'll get into your art in just a minute. But you know, since you brought in uh, the COVID nineteen thing, tell us how you're dealing with that. I know we hit that in on the COVID nineteen special, but for people that are hearing this show, tell us how that's influencing you uh, being in. Maybe good, positive, or not. Well, you know. It's an interesting thing because it slowed everybody down, obviously, including us. And what uh, I find interesting even more about it is that it made me more aware of what's around me versus uh, getting all these snippets of information because prior to COVID, everybody was moving so fast and doing so many things that you never really tasted the uh, materials around you. You just dabble because you always re- uh, realize you could not have to concentrate too much and just take off and do something that might be a little bit less effacing. And now I walk around uh, and see all the things, all the beautiful flowers and subsequently all the things that I've created around me. And I've had the opportunity to take that in in a more defined way. And so that if there's any positive to come out of it, it's that. Plus, slowed everybody down, or me especially, and made me think about all the relationships that have occurred over the years, and as I'm aging and wondering where everything is headed in the midst of all the anxiety out there, it's a kind of double-edged sword. I I fear for my kids, in a sense, uh, but yet I'm surrounded by beautiful atmosphere, and so I'm very lucky in that regard. I'm sure I'm a lot luckier than a lot of other people out there. Well, John, it seems like you're your whole life is immersed in the art. I mean, your gardens are gorgeous. Your, you know, your workshop is inspiring. I love that, you know, it, it's a part of every part of your life, you know, and primarily because you're equally comfortable in so many mediums. So, so currently, you know, I've seen your current cert, uh, your current series of Mr. Blister in Mr. Blister's quarantine and and various other drawings. So right now, what are you working on? Has it been drawings? Is it sculpture? Uh, And, you know, since I've done the drawings, I I started those before the COVID outbreak. And Mr. Blister was uh, an interesting little concept for me because the word itself, uh, bliss and blister, you know, uh, the happiness versus the pain of a blister, pointing it out. Since you don't see, well, no, that's itself, that's part. If anybody knows your work, that's that's part of it anyway. These, yeah, um, yeah. It's just a play on words. I think that goes back to my English uh, literature days. You know, I like I like uh, confounding concepts with words and so on. Anyway, I made this series, and it, it ended up with the last one being relegated to the uh, coronavirus. Uh, imaging. I did. I, I do things in in series. It seems like until I burn out. And right now, I haven't really done anything in an immediate way. 
what I'm doing is I'm taking landscape I have here, and that's become my can canvas. So I move my outside pieces around and put them in locations that are, I, I think, inspiring in terms of the floral arrangements and so on, you know. And I just like walking around and making this place a, a virtual virtual uh, painting, if you will, you know. Can people come by and see your work? Doing. I have, I have. You certainly achieved that. It's gorgeous. Can people come by and see your work, John? Like if they drive by, do you uh, care if they do that? Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that drive by, and I have sculpture out front that you can see. I don't know what their opinions are of it or, or not. They don't, you know, no, nobody just pulls in, which would be fine with me. Anybody interested in, uh, enough to pull over and, and want to look at something, that'd be, that'd be fine. But I would be interested in knowing what goes through people's heads when they see my work, just like anybody else that's an artist, you know. Very good. Tell us a little bit about the the uh, Family of Man series, and also with uh, so our audience can visualize. Um, and I did that in the introduction. Kind of how what mediums you work in, how how you get from creating a piece, what what you do to do that. Well, Family well, Man is a is a good way to start. Well, I, I did these pieces. Uh, I started them uh, quite a few years back. Mac. When I was working as a carpenter, a trim carpenter, we used to uh, cut off mule posts for uh, installing staircases. And that's a, a piece, usually a piece of uh, four inch by four inch oak for a new post. And whatever was left, uh, I used that as a medium to uh, carve uh, a family of man figure. The family of man image is basically an individual standing on a very thin leg, and the other leg is proportionally stronger, and the upper portion of this uh, body, if you will. Is a kind of a metaphor for how I feel internally. You know, it's uh, it's hard to describe it. You'd have to see it. But anyway, these pictures turned out to be about 16 to 18 inches tall, and I made oh, I've probably got about 30 of them, uh, of which I've cast about uh, I think nine or ten of them in bronze. And the whole concept was that they were supposed to be metaphors for how I felt. Uh, you know represented variations in, in uh, people's psyche, psyche orientation. But what it really amounts to are, are that all these little characters are, are me. You know, I mean, they're all self-portraits. And I started thinking that all art, in a sense, unless you become politically, you know, like a social commentator and you want to send messages out there, if you do it really in a personal, aesthetic way, like I feel is important to me, then you're... you're projecting your inner self into these things, and they represent something that hopefully other people will recognize to a certain extent and be drawn to it, you know, and be interested in, in it and contemplate it. So I use that as my, my platform of uh, performing the art back making the family of man. So I've got all these little figures, and I've made some that are... Uh, larger in terms of uh, wood carvings, but the process of doing them in bronze is kind of expensive, and so, you know, I'm limited by that. I've had pretty good luck in making at least these 10 bronzes, you know, and I, I'm, I'm happy for that. Right, and they, they're really so, they're so different. They, they To me, they're like interpretations of stability, like some are dangerous or threatening, some are very peaceful, you have some, um, some are very contemplative, 
I mean, they're all contemplative, actually, because um, it's such a visceral, you have a visceral, visceral reaction to them. I mean, like, I'm drawn well, to... you know, what, what I find interesting about it is that uh, the people that have bought them in the past, I'm always surprised by their interpretations and why they even are attracted to them, you know? I mean, with all the images that I have, they come up to me and say, you know, that one just affects me. <laughs> In a personal manner that, right. that they're willing to pay, you know, they're willing to pay for, you know, which is the ultimate in, in, uh, it, to me, it, it shows that you're making a contract with somebody to share your thoughts and they're going to take care of the piece, you know. Right. I know. There's like two that I'm, you know, that I've always been drawn to. I mean, but, you know, as I have, as I've been around them quite a bit, you know, you start to really start to understand all of them. But, but that initial reaction, I do, you know, when we have them in the gallery, you know, people are drawn to particular ones. Really, so interesting. Yeah, and, and I have to say, you know, you you made a good point about some of them being a little bit on the aggressive side. I I think uh, most of my work has a tendency to be aggressive and pointy and. You know, something that's not necessarily milk toast. You know, it's uh, it's so true, and those are the reactions. But you know, if you, if you really, if you really look at the piece, they may be threatening, but they're done in a, in, in the bronze is an interesting media because if you do one in bronze, it has a tendency to have its own beautification. You know, so you have this dialogue going on between the beauty of the piece and the sentiment of the piece. You know, and uh, one's aggressive, one's uh, Slick and smooth and beautiful, you know, it's just uh, life in general, you know, this constant dialogue that you're having. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Uh, John, do you have? When do you have any uh, exhibits? Is it, can you take these things out to exhibit? It sounds like you had one at the Nest, but and do you have any exhibits planned? No, I don't have any exhibits planned. I, unfortunately, I've done enough of them in the past. Uh, I've been around, you know, in the Michigan area, various galleries and uh, smaller ones in Chicago and this and that. But uh, I'm not what you'd call a, I'm not chasing uh, after that right now, or I don't know if I ever have. But I don't want to denigrate my position as, as an artist. I mean, I think it's important to show your work, but at the same time, uh, I really, I guess I'm lazy. <laughs> I, I prefer to make the work and choked on it <laughs> as, as I try to figure out what I'm going to do. My whole garage is full of work. My, I'm, well, the I'm house has, of, uh, I mean, your furniture is just, your furniture is we so, have a big house. well, the furniture also. So not only is it paintings and drawings and metal sculpture, you also have furniture that also, it's kind of like you have this optimistic approach to like a chaotic world in everything you do. Like, Yes, it's a table, but it's so much more than a table. When you uh, are constantly in a state of anxiety, like like I used to be more so than I am now, you make a piece of work because what it does is it, it just coalesces all these fears and stuff into an object that you had full control over and and it remains after it's done. It's some. It's like some kind of an exorcism. I think it's important to have that outlet. You know, a lot of people can't do that, so they go. You know, they go off into different directions that are probably unhealthy for themselves. But I'm not saying that uh, making art is a healthy prospect either, <laughs> necessarily. If you're really into uh, doing it for the, what I believe is the right reason. 
but it's a complicated issue. John, one one of the questions I have is, what is your, well, either inspiration or people that you may have studied under to learn some of the, not only craftsmanship, but that inspired your current art to do what you do? Well, I don't want to sound too, you know, ostentatious here, but I, I pretty much learned on my own. After I graduated from IU, I, uh, you know, I did a lot of traveling in Europe. Uh, prior to that, as a kid, I grew up, uh, as I was growing up, we went and did trips to Germany and stayed there for periods of time, then come back and back and forth. And then I did a three-month hitchhiking in, in Europe and also added another month to that when I got back to the United States and hitchhiked to California and back. I guess that was my learning process. I went to see a lot of museums. I went to see the, you know, when you go to Europe, there's nothing but art everywhere you go. So that's, that was my teaching experience. Now, I've had a couple of acquaintances, one of whom I became very close to, who was a man who actually had a background studying uh, and doing art in Austria. His name was Conrad Gestell, and he was uh, a person of the region here. And he influenced me a lot. He was almost like my mentor uh, for many years. He was a painter and studied with a guy named Oskar Kokoschka, which is People in the art world will know who he is because he was pretty famous, but he's not like a Picasso or so on. Anyway, after we collaborated or talked or whatever you want to call it for so many years, it got to the point where I kind of saw his way of thinking. He didn't necessarily teach me how to paint or anything. He was a painter and I was a sculptor, but we managed to uh, hash over concepts. And I think that that was one of the things that I learned from, you know. Because he was a smart man and, so, and, so John, and spiritual, you know. So, John, if, if money wasn't an issue, would you create another large sculpture like you, like the one that was at Purdue and Ivy Tech? Absolutely. I mean, I've got small maquettes right now that I, I would love to reproduce uh, in a larger format, you know. And I have to say, though, uh, when I started expanding a little bit and getting into metal welding, I really enjoyed doing that. The piece that's at Ivy Tech right now, which I think looks fabulous with their building and everything. Yes, it, um, it does. That was a, uh, what do we call it, a jump in, in the fate, you know, trying to do something that I've never done before and, you know, paying some <laughs> paying money for something that I, it almost necessitated me doing a large piece, you know, just, it was like, if you don't do one, then how can you tell people, you can talk all day long, but the uh, proof is in the pudding, you know, it's got to be out there. And so the process was interesting, you know, well, because especially it, convincing it, it involves, my wife. It involves somebody else. I mean, like with the smaller sculptures, you're there from oh, yeah. start to finish, but the fabricators oh, yeah. have to be involved, you know, in that next level. It was fun. It was, uh, and, and the fellow that did it was actually a steel manufacturer in uh, Portage, a place that I, I ran into, and he did a fabulous job. I, I couldn't be happy with that piece. Yeah, the piece and, is amazing. Even though, it, even though it looked good in my yard, uh, it looks better, you know, in the location it's located, you know, now. And also I had an opportunity to show us for a few years over at Purdue uh, with uh, Judy Jacoby, uh, who ran the program over there, which unfortunately is going to be, uh, I think, closing down. Yeah, but, you know, I have to say the Ivy Tech, you know, it's a very nice frame for the piece. It really yeah, shows up. Yeah. John, just so we, if people know if they want to go visit, which Ivy Tech is that piece at? It's the one uh, in Valparaiso, Ivy Tech Drive, but I think it's, what is that, uh, Esther's Airport? 
Plaza or something? Or something or like or that, yes. I'd have to... Yeah. Well, they, our audience could find uh, Ivy Tech in that, and the Purdue one. Which Purdue is that at? Well, it's, no, there, it's the not there anymore. Okay. Right. But is your sculpture not there anymore? They do have quite They have a lot of sculpture at Purdue right now. Uh, you know, it was a program where they leased the sculpture for a year or two, and a lot of people from uh, Chicago and so on were showing work. So I was part of that uh, group. I don't know how much more they're going to be doing them, but because of... Uh, you know, economic constraints and so on, but I'm hoping for the best on that. John, uh, can they, do you have a website presence or a Facebook? So if people wanted to visual, uh, see some of your art, at least online, uh, how could they do that? Well, I, I'm embarrassed to say that my website is uh, okay, but it ain't the greatest. <laughs> not too hot with that, but it's called H-A-D-E-L.com. Okay, and do you have a Facebook presence or Instagram or something else? You know, the, your, there's also the website that's just tabella.com, too. Right. No, it's tabella, H-A-B-E-L-A.com. Well, we want to get it correct for our audience. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a number, yeah, I, one, I number one fan, John. That shows you why my career... That's why that shows you why my career is faltering so much. <laughs> it's not faltering. I can't even keep... I can't even keep it straight in my own mind. This, this uh, computerized world is... Uh, left me in the lurch. Well, I'll always That's be your number one cheerleader. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. Is there any projects you're looking forward to doing uh, that you haven't done yet? When I started out, I, I did realistic portrait work, painting. And then uh, uh, I started getting more satisfaction out of doing sculpture, and I gradually moved in that direction. So I went from, from there to wood carving, from wood carving to uh, making some of these bronzes and so on. And from making the bronzes, I went into... Uh, uh, doing organic furniture, which was using a chainsaw to make coffee tables and things, you know, that are stunning because of the, the material. And it's not just like uh, putting four legs on a piece of wood, you know. Uh, they were a little bit more manufactured. That excited me. And then I ended up uh, going into metal welding, which I have a whole yard full of uh, creatures, I call them. They're, they're kind of like insect creatures that are... Another aspect of my personality that I love, and they kind of fit out in the uh, in the yard well. So, from this point in time, I may have to maybe try painting again. Yeah, I was just going to, I love your painting. <laughs> it, might, it might just come full circle, you know. I've been doing the illustrative work, and I could see possibly a, a approaching the painting, but I, I, I don't know. I, I don't like it just last things together because I, I had time on my hands. I, I, I want to use it in, in the uh, as some kind of a connection with my thought pattern of 50 years now, you know. I don't just want to entertain myself. I want to I want to find the meaning of life, right, like we all do. Right? <laughs> well, John, finally, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up here? No, I wish everybody the best out there. I'm, I'm a little bit uh, confused as to what's happening in the art world these days, but uh, you know, I don't worry about it too much. I just worry about what's happening in my own head. And I'm sure uh, a lot of people are doing that now since they're kind of contained in a, a, you know, in their personal environment. And I would suggest getting more aroused of, with the materials around you 
and checking them on seeing where it all relates to you as a human being. And hopefully the world will get better before it gets worse. Well, we hope so too. John, thank you so much for being out in the air. That was John J. Habella. He's a sculptor uh, doing so much other work. Uh, so we really appreciate you being on Art in the Air, John. Uh, thank you, thank John. Thank you for the opportunity. And we'd like to thank our guests today for being on Art in the Air, which is heard every Friday at 11 a.m., rebroadcast Monday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Your hosts are Larry Breckner and Esther Golden. Thanks again to Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager, and Tom Maloney, Vice President, Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Underwriters for Art in the Air are Valparaiso University's Brower Museum and Walt Brenninger of Paragon Investments. Also, Mary LeVan is our art patron supporter. Art in the Air is supported by the Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant and the National Endowment for the Arts. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event, exhibit, please email us at art. On the air, WVLP at gmail.com. That's art on the air, WVLP at gmail.com. Our program, along with all of our programs, are streaming live at WVLP.org. Art on the air is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Our entire show archive can be heard at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com slash AOTA. You'll also find our detailed arts calendar at breck.com slash AOTA. Our shows are carried by Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, every Sunday at 7 p.m., and you can hear them at lakeshorepublicradio.org. Our theme music you heard is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art in the Air is always looking for financial support. We'd like to thank our current supporters. If you're looking to support Art in the Air and, of course, the WVLP station, we'd be happy to become part of the WVLP family anytime. Esther and I especially would invite you to become an underwriter of this program in particular. We have information on our website at breck.com slash AOTA. You can find out support information there or at wvlp.org slash support. See you right here next week, 103.1 FM and 89.1 FM, Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry Art on the air today Stay in the know with Larry and Esther Art on the air our way Express yourself to art And show the world your heart Express yourself to art And show the world your heart Express yourself to art and show the world your heart, express yourself to art. And show the world your heart, express yourself to art. And show.